Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out tonight, trekking through the water, the slush, the snow, um, and coming out here tonight. We're so glad that you could come. Um, my name is Rosemary Eldridge. I'm the Director of Programs and Communications here at the CIC. And on behalf of the CIC and our Director, Father Charles Trulos, it is my pleasure to welcome you here tonight. Um, for those of you here in person and watching online, um, for tonight's event with Leah Labresco, featuring her new book, Building the Benedict Option, a guide for gathering two or three together in his name. Leah is a proud 2015 Leonine Fellow who, worked, who has worked as a statistics professor, a data journalist, and a Bayesian probability instructor at an organization teaching defensive driving for your brain. She converted to Catholicism after graduating from Yale University. Her writing has appeared in the Washington Post, First Things, The Weekly Standard, the American Interest, and the Americans Conservative, among others. She has spoken across the United States, as well as Australia, Ireland, and Poland. Her first book is Arriving at Amen, Seven Catholic Prayers That Even I Can Offer. And with that, please join me in welcoming our good friend, Leah Labresco. Well, thanks so much for having me back. And I will say that for anyone who's here tonight, uh, remind your friends. I assume the CIC is still doing Christmas poetry, right? Okay, I won't be here because I live in New York now, and I'm like only paying frame fare so often this month to come down. But I just strongly recommend the Christmas poetry night. Um, and for everyone on the live stream, especially folks who chose to drive home uh, before it got much slushier, uh, I think if you're missing the talk in person, uh, make cocoa at home and invite over your neighbor and pray for them, and you'll have gotten the gist of the talk. Uh, in the meantime. So as you heard in the introduction, I'm a convert to Catholicism. And one of the things that kind of did attract me about the church, one of the places where it seemed like the church was telling the truth in a way not everyone in the culture does, was in just kind of the, the wild range of vocations that exists within the church. Uh, that we're all called to love each other as Christ does. And the form that that takes can kind of vary enormously. And C.S. Lewis has a quote about this where he says, you know, that the tyrants are all kind of boringly the same, uh, but there's a wild variety in the saints. And G.K. Chesterton, being G.K. Chesterton, like, says it in an even more, you know, emphatic way when he says that, you know, among, among the Catholic saints, you know, we have people who were martyred for holding on to their virginity. We have people who were patrons of a holy family like the Martins. Because the Catholic Church has at various points been strongly in favor of having children and strongly in favor of not having children, you know, in favor of going to war for a righteous cause, in favor of letting yourself be killed rather than raise your hand against another. And he kind of summarizes this, you know, that these different virtues, he says, it has kept them side by side, like two strong colors, red and white, like the red and white upon the shield of St. George. It has always had a healthy hatred of pink. And I think there's a, there's a real extent to which we can find that the roles we're expected to play or what a successful life looks like, you know, as judged by the world, is surprisingly flat and narrow. Um, and you know, even sometimes within the church, the examples we talk about can be a lot narrower than the full legacy of the witness of the saints. Um, but I find this question of kind of 
vocation and how we're called to offer love to each other really attractive about the church. And just to talk a little about vocation to start with here, you know, how many people, just going over some of the common ones, you know, have ever considered whether they were called to the vocation of marriage? I am married, happily I've considered it. Um, this one's more personal, but like if you've ever considered or know someone who's considered, so you have plausible deniability, um, a vocation to the priesthood. And in my case, this is a know someone. Uh, a vocation to consecrated religious life of any kind. And does anyone uh, actively themselves consider or know someone who's considered a vocation to be a stylite? All right, for the, for the live streamers, there's no hands up at the moment, uh, but possibly people are very shy. <laughs> so stylitism is one of the weirder calls to holiness in the church. Uh, it's not in G.K. Chesterton's list, but it was a mode of hermetic life where instead of kind of going out to the desert or being enclosed in a cell or just being in a cave, some holy men, mostly men, possibly a few women, you know, just gave their lives over completely to God. You can come on in. Um, this is about hospitality. Everyone can come into the room. Gave their lives over completely to God by kind of living on large platforms to be removed from the bustle of the world so they could devote themselves entirely to prayer. You know, and because they had made this like stark choice out of love for God, people would kind of all come to the bottom of their platforms and yell spiritual questions up at them. Uh, which like, wasn't quite what they were seeking at the beginning, but people could see like, a strong life chosen for God and wanted to be near it and to know what these slightly remote people had to say to them. But the thing is, choosing to become a stylite was not something you were supposed to choose casually. Like with other vocations, there was a period of discernment. And if you were a monastic, you were supposed to have the permission of your monastic superior to become any kind of hermit, uh, simply because it's very hard. And the idea of kind of, you know what, I'm just going to, just me and God, just me, my naked soul before God 24-7, was something where your mask would go, you know, you're not that great at living in community. Like, and it's, it's easier to notice what you're doing wrong living in community. So you kind of have to manage that first before anyone's going to be okay with you picking stylitism. So you know, live, live with your brothers for like five years, and then we'll talk. What's weird is that Today, it's not weird that there aren't that many visible stylites. That's you know, perhaps a quirk of history. Um, what's weird is that there are a lot of people who have taken on the lifestyle of a stylite without the permission of a monastic superior and without kind of any vetting or preparation at all. Uh, the, the platforms are not kind of just built on poles or on cliffs anymore. And in DC, I know that platforms aren't allowed to go above 10 stories, um, but a lot of folks wind up living hermetic lives, um, living their faith alone, nakedly before God, without the assistance of a monastic superior or a community or anything else. And that's why I got really interested in kind of the experiences I had in this book and in writing this book on how to cultivate community. Because if it's a bad idea for kind of a monk who's like discerned into a certain form of religious life, it's a terrible idea for the rest of us. And I was lucky because when I became a Catholic here in Washington, D.C., a lot of people kind of all rallied to my side to make sure that I wouldn't become an accidental stylite as a new Catholic. You know, converting when you're lucky is a little bit like setting off a like, large flare gun 
and people kind of mobbed me to go like, do you know about St. Faustina? You may want to know things about St. Faustina now that you are Catholic, right? Um, Father Thomas Joseph White at the Dominican House of Studies like picked the church I should become Catholic in and went like, also I will find you a friend there. You'll like Sarah, here she is. <laughs> and I do, I like her very much. Uh, and I was kind of going through a very disruptive period of my new faith. Um, but for a lot of Catholics, you know, especially when graduating from college, when changing jobs, when moving, there's a similar disruption, a similar uprooting of all the ties you have of people you pray with or routines of prayer you have in your life without kind of the dramatic distress signal of a conversion and without necessarily as many people rallying all around you. So while I lived here in D.C., you know, and now that I live in New York, a lot of my focus was on how can I kind of draw on my friends to pray together, to love God together? How can I make sure that I'm not practicing my faith kind of only at mass and only in my house? And those are the two places I talk to God. And everywhere else, you know, he can reach my voicemail. And then when I get to those two places for prayer, I will pray again. Uh, I want to talk a little about some of the questions I found most helpful in coming up with alternatives to what happened to me by default. And the first question is just, what do I do alone that I could do with other people? It doesn't have to be anything very dramatic. Um, but for me, some of the simplest stuff was just, honestly, things I enjoyed um, but never got to share. There are a lot of hymns I like that, as it happens, the music director at my parish like does not also happen to like. Um, it's, I go to a beautiful parish with motets, which is not the level of musical competence that I myself possess. So St. Augustine says that he who sings prays twice, but for me it was always mostly solo prayer. You know, once a year I might luck out that this was the post-communion hymn, and I get to sing it loudly with everyone else. And the rest of the year it's a means of prayer that I would pray primarily in the shower uh, when singing hymns with a possible, now that I'm married, like sudden joining in from outside the bathroom from my husband. Um, and so when I was talking with my friends just about things we wanted to do together, many of our wishes were relatively boring. Uh, I want to occasionally sing hymns I like, not by myself. Um, I want to go to adoration with someone else. Um, one of the wishes people have is just like, I want to see children ever. Uh, no one in my office brings children. I live in a neighborhood where there are no parents. I haven't seen a child in so long. Oh my God, I'm starving. Um, and we, when people named their wishes, the kinds of things people wanted were so, so normal. Singing, like adoration, the existence of children. It was almost embarrassing to ask for them. Uh, okay, I've started with that question of what is good that I could share with other people, and then how will I just make the decision to do it? Now, in my case, I was very lucky because a friend of mine in DC had a piano and just invited us over and said, I will play all your hymns for you. Tell me what the hymns are. I will work out the chords, like, and then we will sing. In New York, I do not have a friend with a piano. Um, so, well, I do, but she's in Queens, so it's very hard to get to where she is. So sometimes we've had hymn sings where we're just using YouTube, right? But where Simply like singing together is something that by default the world does not make available to us and we had to just actively connive a small amount to make it possible. But sometimes I've found that it's fruitful for me to share things that aren't kind of good, but are in fact terrible. 
uh, with other people. And one of, one of the things I was most happy I did in D.C. was that I changed jobs several times while living in D.C., and I always hate it. Um, I think everyone hates applying for jobs, but I hate it more than you because I work as a writer often, which means that I've had periods of time where I'm applying for jobs that don't pay me money. Um, so I would be applying for internships at magazines or anything else where the salary was nothing um, and sending a cover letter and not hearing anything ever, which means that the, the choice that this group had made is like your labor is worth uh, less than zero dollars for us. If we could have it for free, uh, we wouldn't have you in for an interview to check. Uh, I guess we think that having you work for us costs us money in some sense. This is just incredibly dispiriting. And being in those periods of like misery always kind of left me more vulnerable to spiritual attack because it was always a time when that little, that little voice that goes like, yeah, you know, that's true. Like this internship, like you're not worth it. Like most things, you're not worth it. Like, you know, you're, you're kind of worthless, right? Like it was a, was a voice that was a little harder to ignore whenever I was in the middle of asking a lot of people to assess my worth at zero dollars for a six-month internship and hearing them say, no. And this is the kind of thing, and this is common for me in my prayer life, where there are a lot of kinds of errors that creep into my head that I have trouble defending myself against. But the second I hear one of my friends talk about how worthless they feel, like, I want to go punch whoever said it to them. And if it happens to be the devil, like, that's fine. Like, I can punch him too. Um, and so I was, you know, had friends who were in the middle of changing jobs. And every time I heard the words that were in my head come out of their mouth, I got angrier. And I thought this was something I wanted to bring people together for. Not because it was fun, like the hymn sing. Uh, not because it was like a fruitful form of worship I wanted to invite other people into. But because I thought it was terrible. Uh, and we needed to band together in self-defense. So I had folks over and you know, just kind of said, all right, you know, everyone can work on job applications. There's plenty in front. Um, Everyone can work on job applications at my house, and we're going to do evening prayer all together, and then we're going to work on job applications, and then we're going to eat dinner, and then we're going to do more work, and then we're going to have a skillet cookie, which is you know, simply a cookie the size of a skillet, and then we're going to do a little more work, and then we'll do night office, and everyone will go home. And I, I feel like this is one of the best social events I've thrown, and it was an event that had three people at it. Um, because it just, like, it wrapped that whole experience of doubt and attack in prayer. I thought of the evening and night office as almost being parentheses around everything else. So that everything else we did, the, the work, the eating, was almost like an a intake of breath in the middle of what otherwise is unbroken prayer. It's just a very long intake of breath. And because the simple fact of our presence was testifying to the fact that that satanic voice in our head was a lie. You know, that there are people here in this room who care for each other, who really like don't care for each other based on whether or not you're getting the job application you've got tonight. Um, the fact of eating like was uh, a pledge of our love for each other, as feeding people always is. So those are kind of when I ask what can I do, what do I do alone that I could do with other people. I kind of always want to explore both branches of things that are good in my life that I want to invite other people into. And things that are hard or difficult or even difficult in an embarrassing, tedious way, uh, which is what job applications feel like, even though it is a moment of like 
doubt and temptation, it's not a very dramatic one. Like Martin Scorsese is not going to make a movie about the pull towards apostasy generated by job applications. But it's not any less serious for that. Um, so inviting people into that moment of struggle was what I wanted to do. Um, and I would actually like to, for this talk, um, just pause a couple times during it to hear any uh, ideas you guys have along this front in your own life. Um, because I'm going to give you some that are kind of most rooted in my own needs and the needs of people I know best. But that certainly doesn't cover all ways of life or the diversity of vocations. So I actually want to give you guys like two minutes of silence to thinking your chairs or whisper to people near you of anything you do alone that you'd like to invite other people into, either because it is good or because it is difficult. Does anyone, does anyone have an example that they came up with or that they overheard someone whispering so you have plausible deniability that it's not yours um, that they'd like to share? If you have one, raise your hand. I'll bring the mic to oh, you. Oh, mic. So our people at home can hear as well. It wasn't really my idea, but um, I was just because uh, I, I'm a con recent convert as well. So it was a couple of years ago and I just wanted to have other um, people that I knew to go to Catholic things with. And so I went to um, theology on tap a couple of times. And so some people just said, well, we should just have like the people who were talking to each other and, you know, had a similar um, interest. They said, let's just have a Facebook group and. And so people just throw out all different kinds of stuff, you know, just like, um, you know, what you want, what are people doing this weekend, or if they have an event at their parish, or just anything. So, so that's worked out pretty well so far. That's great. Like, and I do think often you want people to get together with people, but the best uses of the internet I've experienced are just kind of making it easier to invite people in by casually mentioning things, just like that, where you know I'm not going to write a letter of invitation of I'm popping out to this lecture, but just the, the easier it is to casually mention things to people I'm not seeing in person by default, the more I see them. So one thing that I did for a couple months last year, and I'm thinking of reviving now that mm -hmm. I have a personal space for it, mm -hmm. is I got people together to just do art. Ooh. So before we were meeting up in the courtyard of the National Portrait Gallery, and that worked for a while, mm -hmm. um, but it was hard for everyone to get there and we were limited in the supplies we could use. Mm -hmm. Like we couldn't bring paints. It would just be like dry media. Mm -hmm. But now that I have a house, I can have a lot of folks over and um, not have to bother with the with what would be um, appropriate in like a public space in a public building. <laughs> nice. I've sometimes heard people say when I've given uh, this talk other places that they want to go to art museums, especially that have sacred art with another Christian friend to actually you know, use them as invitations to prayer rather than only as look at the skill of this artist as something they want to share. Yeah. One of the other questions I found particularly fruitful in this way is not only what do I do alone that I can do with other people, but what do I do privately that I can do in public? And Michael's example of the art is good kind of both ways, that there's kind of more things you can do in the privacy of your home. But sometimes, you know, just the fact of taking something out of your house is not only a gift to everyone you're with, but to people going by who go, is that allowed? <laughs> you can do art anywhere? Um, which I find is often a big, a big hurdle just even for prayer. Um, 
that there are definitely places, again, as a convert, I knew from cultural osmosis that you can pray at church and you can pray next to your bed at night. But like everywhere else was an active question for me, especially because unlike a convert from a Protestant faith, I had no experience with prayer. It wasn't that I was adding to my prayer life. I was creating my prayer life. So my whole life, which was given to me by God, I have had to go, oh, well, should I share this part of it with him? I suppose so. Like, this part is for you, God. Well, I'm, I'm at work, so that's obviously not a time for God. You know, I'm busy. Uh, but I suppose on my way back from work, like, yes, that is also for you, Lord. Like, And what I found really helpful is just kind of having the chance, you know, to pray anywhere, which means praying in weirder places, so that I'm not training myself out of listening to the Holy Spirit when it prompts me to pray for someone or something or just to be open to what God is saying to me by going, Good, I will do that when I get home later. Um, you know, and sometimes the act of praying in public you know, is simply for me, honestly. Um, it's not intended by me as a means of witness. Um, it's certainly not intended as like an interesting defiance of the culture. Um, you know, it's just God is always with me. It's nice for me to remember sometimes to turn around and look back at him. But sometimes it has kind of opened a door that wasn't even an invitation I was trying to offer. So on a recent trip up um, on Metro North to New Haven, I was praying the Divine Mercy Chaplet on the train simply because I was praying the Divine Mercy Chaplet every day during St. Michael's Lent for, you know, holiness in the church. And, you know, a guy sitting on the train went, are you praying a rosary? And I'm like, yes, you know, like, I love the Divine Mercy Chaplet, but yes, like, you can see it. Um, it's true. And he, he was Catholic, it turns out. And he just said, wow, I just haven't seen someone do that, you know, on the train. And I'm like, yeah. And so we just chatted a little bit, um, you know, in a way he wouldn't have approached me otherwise. And because he was chatting with me and because he saw me praying, you know, he wound up telling me that he has leukemia. And, you know, he had had flat blood results for a while and things had been looking good until very recently. And he was waiting to hear more from his doctor. So would I pray for him? Um, and I did. And I told him about um, a health thing that was going on in my own family at that time. And he prayed for me. I think one of the big gifts of just taking small things, whether they're solo prayer or larger events, out of our own homes and occasionally out of our churches, whether formally for processions sponsored by the parish or just casual things done among our friends, is that there are so many more people in the world that we're called to love that we're not encountering. There's a real extent that on Ash Wednesday, which is a day of fasting, it feels like a day of like revealed abundance because that's the day I go to work and go, you're a Christian. <laughs> like not that I would have asked during the year. Oh, and the whole year, this is someone who like, shares my faith at least to an extent, right? who is someone I could be praying with, possibly, but who I didn't know until it was revealed on this penitential day of fasting. The whole rest of the year, it's on me to kind of offer that invitation or respond to other people's. You know, and some of the ways I've spotted Catholics out in the wild have been pretty small ones. You know, being in Penn Station late at night and having like a group of young people go like, which is the train to Pennsylvania, to Philadelphia? And I'm like, oh, the Pope is in Philadelphia. Are you guys Catholic? And they're like, yes. Uh, and I both gave them the directions, and we all prayed a decade of the rosary together. <laughs> like, sometimes it's subtler. Um, but it's just, the way I kind of think about it is, how hard am I making the Holy Spirit work to bring me together with people, you know, who I might need or who might need me? Um, 
when I, when I have events kind of just in my apartment, even though I'm being hospitable to the friends I invite in, like the Holy Spirit has to make a big push for anyone else to make it there, right? They have to get off on the wrong floor of my building and either like get mixed up at what door they're going for, or just kind of walk down the thing and then like trip and fall into my door. And then I open it and they're like, I didn't realize there was a party for the Immaculate Conception in here. I guess I'll stay. Um, so some of the ways I've kind of moved stuff out of my house, just aside from my own personal prayer in public, um, it's just, you know, my, my husband and I hosted a picnic for All Saints where, you know, it was just, it was a potluck picnic. We actually brought all the food, but uh, you brought the saints, right? So everyone just came and told stories about saints they liked. Um, and we did it in a park rather than in our house. On the off chance anyone, like, went, this sounds interesting. I'll come over. No, no one did. It wasn't, like, that visually interesting. <laughs> You know, we read A Man for All Seasons outside in the same park as it happens for the Feast of St. Thomas More, which was like a little noisier. Um, here when I lived in D.C., I used to hold debates once a month on my roof of my building. And during one of those debates, when it was nice out, not today, um, during one of those debates, this woman comes up to me and goes, are, are you that group that debates up here? And I'm like, yes, figuring the next thing out of her mouth is going to be, please don't do that. <laughs> like, uh, since we got like a little rowdy and we had a noisy gavel and everything, right? Um, and she goes, oh, well, you know, my son is 13, you know, and he heard part of your debate last time, so could he sit nearby and just listen to the debate? And I'm like, no, no, he should sit with us, like not in like a, an eavesdropping annex, and he can ask questions like if he wants to, it's, it's fine. Um, and so he, he did. And then he started attending our debates every month because he lived in the building. Um, and it was, like, it was great. First of all, it was like the only 13-year-old any of us knew again, right? <laughs> because we were young enough that like none of, most of us didn't have babies, like let alone 13-year-olds. And our siblings were all older than that. So again, with the weird age segregation of our culture, suddenly we knew someone that none of us like knew for any other reason. <laughs> and from my point of view, it was a big improvement for our debates because when he attended people were more careful about swearing, uh, which I thought was an enormous gift to us. You know, but he lived in our building, and he wasn't going to find us any other way except us being visible in some way. Um, and it was just such a, such a gift to us to know him. So I think that's kind of the potential whenever we take our faith out in public. And you know, on that spectrum of like you pray the rosary on the train, you like hang out with friends in a park. I'll just give you like the far end of the spectrum for me so far, which was, you know, last year was the first ever feast of Mary, mother of the church on the Monday after Pentecost, because it's a new feast. Usually when I celebrate a feast for the first time as a convert, y'all aren't celebrating the feast for the first time with me, but this time you were. So I was extremely excited. And so we got friends together to kind of do a rosary procession just on our own uh, around our neighborhood. And we wanted to, like, you know, not just to be weird religious people praying a rosary, because I was more concerned it would look like a protest of some kind. Um, so we were like, we should kind of make it clear that we're doing this and we're rejoicing and, like, why we're doing it. So we hung our favorite images of Mary around her necks on placards. <laughs> and I live in New York City where, like, this is still not the weirdest thing anyone will see that day, so I feel like I can get away with it, Right. But it was, it was really joyful, and it was, a, it was nice for us just to rejoice so loudly. But the other thing that really struck me as we were out in the streets is, you know, as we're walking through the city along Broadway, and I can see the advertisements that are up everywhere, 
to think about the images we were holding of Mary. And people, you know, I just said to everyone, send us your favorites and we'll print them on cardstock. So we had, you know, Our Lady Undoer of Nantes. We had Our Lady of Seven Sorrows. We had Our Lady of Good Hope. We just had like a nativity one. There was so much more variation in what it meant to be a woman in all these portraits of one woman than there was in the ads that were up, which were you know, much more like highly contoured face, lightly concussed expression, um, <laughs> semi-clad. And I, you know, even though no one really uh, had a big conversation with us there, I was thinking, you know, what, what would have been all the images of women people saw today if we hadn't taken these out? just for today, just for this one feast. So again, I'd like to just pause for two minutes for just anything, again, that's fruitful in your life now or anything that's weirder that you could take on that you might do publicly instead of privately. It can be as crazy as just strap on pictures of Mary and go through the streets. It can be as normal as, you know, pray something silently on the train. But just anything that feels like it might be fruitful in your own life to pray ceaselessly. So I'll give you like two minutes of silent thinking and then we'll pull out the mic. It's one that took a long while to bear fruit, but I always think of how, you know, at work or in ordinary conversations, you're asked, what are you doing this weekend? What are you doing this week? And I think a lot of times people are like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go to have a dinner to celebrate a feast day, or I'm going mm-hmm. to the March for Life, or I'm going to on a retreat this weekend. But you don't say that. Yeah. And so... I've tried to make it a point to say that. And one of the things is my office building is right on the mall and it's very close to where the March for Life organizes. And so typically I'll take a half day and I would say, you know, why are you taking a half day off? I would say that's where I was going. And it ended up that one of my coworkers, when he finally got the chance to encounter me outside of the office where it was just the two of us, he was then felt comfortable to say, oh, well, you know, I'm also a Christian. Are you like, he, was a, he used that as a way to bring up that part of his life, which is something that just didn't come up naturally in office conversation. So even just saying that the things about faith in my life, they're as normal as going to brunch on the weekend, watching the game on the weekend, doing all these other things that we do. And so that is, you know, something that I have found effective. I think that's a great example. You know, I've, I've heard to that sometimes at work just at the level of like, oh, yeah, you know, I have to go out for a bit, you know, today because it's a holy day of obligation. In fact, it's this feast, which... Like is more welcoming of questions because people can just go what like but comfortably and without kind of being terrified of where the conversation will go. And I'm really happy you tell your coworkers you go to the March for Life because for me that's like that's a more challenging thing to do than walk through the streets holding pictures of Mary. <laughs> um, but I, it's really true that people who have questions don't know who to ask unless we reveal ourselves sometimes. Similarly, I've gotten in the habit of making calendar notices on my work calendar when I'm going to be going to some kind of religious event Mm -hmm. and leaving it public instead of keeping it private. So it's just like, Tim Marcato says a private event. Don't schedule a meeting for Mm -hmm. him from like 12 to 12.50. So instead, if anyone's trying to schedule a meeting for me, then they'll see that I'm actually not going to be in the office because I'm going to daily mass or... A few weeks ago, I went to the memorial for Matthew Shepard at the National Cathedral in D.C., and then my boss actually talked to me about it, and that dovetailed into a longer conversation about religion and faith that I wasn't sure I was able to have in my current office setting, and it ended up <laughs> yeah. being a really nice conversation just by virtue of 
being public about how I express my faith and what I, what that entails on a weekly basis. Yeah, I think I think the kind of just the prompt of like, what do I feel like a temptation to conceal that's just happening in my life where if it weren't about religion, I would bring it up casually. Um, is a fruitful way of exploring the question, which doesn't mean you have to blurt out everything that comes to mind when you think that question, but it's also useful because there's such a strain kind of in friendships even when you're like, oh yeah, like I'll be busy. Like the, that, that feeling that's, that speaks to a real like wound of just not all being one in the church, right? Um, that we long to share everything in our lives with our friends, especially the most important bits, that there really is something missing when we can't. One way that I feel like I've gotten bolder personally is inviting people to pray before meals um, and just not doing it silently, not just doing the sign of the cross and actually praying before meals with people who I have no idea what religious background they come from. Um, But I find that now I've done it enough that people just kind of automatically do it with me, which is nice and comforting, you know, instead of being kind of afraid of it. Nice. And I think one of the other things is this just, again, helps... I think most is a witness to ourselves that our faith is part of our life, uh, much more than it's even a, a big, strong, aggressive witness to others, um, that there's always space for God in our life um, and that there's nothing that comes before him um, is, for me, the most powerful part of this, much more than like whatever the Holy Spirit manages to do with my public prayer. I have two other questions I want to kind of pose to you, though given the limits of time and the getting you all home safely, um, I'm going to leave them more as discussion for the reception or everywhere else in your life that you want to talk about community. The two questions I found fruitful for just expanding my imagination for what community can look like. Uh, One is just, how did you pray if your family prayed growing up? What habits of prayer did you have together as a family? And are there ways that you can enter into those habits now, even if it's with other people? Because there's, you know, kind of this awkward period that our culture kind of treats as a holding period where you're not with your parents and you're not married. So you have no family. Like, you are an orphan now. Um, and you can't have anything too nice, like, like traditions. Um, and I think that's crazy. Um, I think it's crazy, but it's a message that kind of echoes very loudly in our culture. Uh, and there's a lot of ways that, you know, it's easy to look forward to, well, when I have a family, one thing I'd like to do is this. You know, one reason I'd love to have people over is this. You know, at Christmas time, you know, I'd love to make cookies, like, with my children and then our friends. But you can make cookies with people right now, like, with no justification of children or a spouse, right? Um, and I think that question of what did you do as a family and who can you share that with now who's not related to you by blood is fruitful. Now, for me, as a convert, like, I have no history of prayer with my family. Um, so I cheat and use my husband's history of prayer with his family. But I just find it, I find it really lovely. Even just sometimes I steal from other people's families a bunch. Um, I, when, I, when I stay with friends, you know, who kind of are in a more settled period of their life where I think they may have traditions, like, I just ask them how they pray together as a family. One time I was being driven to a speaking event by the family that was hosting me, and they just said to me, like, oh, by the way, like, we just always pray the rosary while we drive to Mass together. I'm like, oh, I guess that's an option, right? Um, which can happen anytime you're driving with friends. So I think borrowing from the traditions of your family, from the tradition of any family that's willing to tell you its traditions, is a great way to build on your friendships. The other thing I just find helpful is 
what have friends of yours done? Friends, family, anyone? What witness of hospitality have they offered that just like struck you as unusual? And I promise you don't have to take it on, right? So you can just be struck by it. Um, I find it's very useful to gossip about it. Because some things I find intimidating and horrible. Like when I chat about them with friends, like I can't believe so and so. They'll go, oh, I never thought of that. I definitely want to do it, right? Mm -hmm. There's just more good ideas, but not enough cross-pollination of them. I'll say one thing I really love is that I have at least two people I know of in D.C., two different um, households that have just made a commitment to always live somewhere where there's a spare room so that they can easily have people as guests um, so that, like, you know, they encourage people to come. Um, I'm staying with one of them this week, uh, well, tonight, right? Um, but they just want that our house should always have space for guests. Um, and that's not how I hear most people plan the space they need. Um, and I found that just simply moving. I'm actually, I'm just really lucky out on hospitality this week because tomorrow I'm flying to Notre Dame where a mother of a friend of mine who is out of town has said, yes, just stay at my house. Like, I'll give you the key code. Just let yourself in. You know, hang up the towels when you leave. Um, which honestly is something I, I know that I would do. Uh, but I think there, there are more extraordinary witnesses of hospitality that are secretly very attractive to many of us. And the trick is to keep telling these stories even when we're not going to take them on in this season of our life so that people who, who really hear you know, the Holy Spirit saying, yes, go for it, um, have the chance to kind of have that question posed to them. So again, the two questions for you out there the rest of your life, um, what traditions of prayer do your family have and how could you share them with people beyond whatever your family or household is now? And... What are just unusual witnesses of hospitality that you either want to imitate or just, you know, evangelize for so that someone else imitates? Um, we're starved for imagination of how to be a friend to others. We're giving kind of the, the thinnest possible portraits of what friendship looks like. So a large part of what it means to just take on thicker Christian community is looking for examples and talking about them. And I'd like to close with one last example from my own life and just from the gifts my friends have given me which is that the, this book really like started for me after my friends had a long fight on Twitter. Um, so, you know, can anything good come from Twitter? Yes. Um, but it was, a, it was a long fight about Rod Dreyer's Benedict Option project. And, like, this is before the book had even come out. So, like, what is it? Um, you know, what does it mean? Is it bad? Is it good? Like, is it retreat? Is it, like... A different thing, um, there's a lot of arguing in 140 characters. This was back when it was 140 characters. And it was really unfruitful, as like a Twitter fight usually is. So I invited everyone over to my house instead. You know, And people were game for this, which is great. Um, I made them mac and cheese. And we kind of had you know, a two-part discussion. Because I did not actually want to talk about theory that much. So on the roof, we could talk about theory and have dinner. Like, and people said a lot of crazy things. And then we moved to my apartment for dessert. And the deal was, like, once we are in the apartment for dessert, we can only talk about things over this time scale of, like, the next two weeks to two months. Because, like, now we're talking about things that we actually might be in danger of doing, right? So there's no, like, yes, well, when we found the clandestine nurses after the government has stamped out all, like, Catholic nurses, I'm like, sure. Uh, I know you're not doing that in the next two months, so like, we can just drop that for now. Um, what are the real needs we have here to address? And, like, what do we have to offer? And this is the moment when people said, like, my real need is babies. Like, I just need, like, it's, I, I wave to them in strollers, but you can only do that for so long before the stranger is worried. 
which it hits men especially hard, let me just say. It's like way easier for me to make friends with strange babies than it is for my husband. And you know, we're both very nice. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's a real extent to which we expect like single men to have nothing to do with children, but then we also want them to get married and be open to life. Um, and that's a very weird like balance to strike. So I asked people what they needed, you know, and they needed babies, they needed singing, uh, they needed a variety of things. And then I was like, okay, you know, and like, that's what we need. Like, what do we have? What do we all have to give to each other? And people like named a variety of things, you know, the piano, a guitar, like there was a surprising number of musical instruments in play. Um, some people had cars, which was like definitely not a resource everyone in our group had access to. Some people had flexible work schedules, uh, which was like a particular boon for folks with kids who like often are marooned on an island during the day where there are you know no other adults anywhere uh, but people with flexible work schedules could see parents during the day uh, could visit someone who was sick which is like just normally not a thing that's allowed to happen unless you have a flexible work schedule or you're married to them and so we're going through all these things and then I have like I like a really clever one so I'm like oh yes you know and like one of the other things someone has to give to our group is that, you know, Sarah, the Sarah from, like, the beginning of this story, the Father Thomas Joseph White Sarah, you know, is pregnant, as we all know, because she's extremely pregnant. Like, it's, I was not outing her at this time. <laughs> and, like, you know, and so, like, not only will Sarah soon have a baby, which, as we heard, a bunch of people are extremely interested in, um, you know, Sarah and her husband just won't be able to, like, do anything, right? They're going to have a tighter bedtime and a more constrained life in various ways. And because they're already part of this group that's talking about community, you know, one of the gifts they're giving us is that we're not going to accidentally build a community that parents can't be part of. Because we have parents here right at the beginning, and we're not going to, like, frame all our events at starting at 8 and going to 11, um, because that won't work. And so her constraint is a gift to us. And like, oh, it's very insightful of me. Um, and I really just sat back for a second, like expecting everyone else to be like very impressed. Uh, and then one of my friends said, well, I guess if that's the kind of thing we're thinking about, I'm an alcoholic. So if there's anyone here who has a lot of trouble with alcohol, you know, I'm here. And I can, I can talk to them about it, you know, so if, if that helps. And then another person said she was in recovery from anorexia. And another person talked about, more than one person talked about experiences with depression. And in some of these cases, I had already known this. Um, but there were people whose struggles I heard about for the first time that night. Because when I asked them what they had to give, my friends pointed to the thorns in their side and said, this can be my gift to my friends. Um, that's what I have to offer. I think that's, when we think about what it means to create Christian community, everything we offer to God for his people, he will make use of. Um, no matter how constrained our lives are, whether the thing you're offering you know, is simply when I see my friends, I pray with them, you know, a glory be and that's it, you know, and then we do that. Um, whether it's praying quietly on the subway, whether you feel so alone and impoverished that you have nothing to offer except your suffering, that there's never any gift we offer for each other that God does not accept and transfigure and make fruitful. And there's, there's nothing holding us back besides our own fear, our own limited imagination, 
um, and our own sin from being Christ to each other. Um, and so there are, there are a lot of ways to come up with those ideas, but I think the, the major thing I want to leave you with is, you know, his grace is sufficient. Um, we are never without something to offer. The challenge for us is more offering, more offer often, like finding a way to offer the widow's might we have rather than waiting to have something that strikes us as more glorious to offer for his glory. Thank you. So we have a little bit of time for questions. Um, we probably can't get to everyone's questions, but we will have a, a small reception that you'll be able to talk amongst, amongst yourselves and also with Leah as well. Um, so first question right here. Thanks. So you talked a little bit about situations in which uh, people just need to be invited in and you just meet, need to make yourself available. Um, sometimes people have particular sensitivities or um, hot spots mm -hmm. and uh, uh, making yourself available or opening the question uh, may make them hold you more at arm's length um, or just because they're, they're not particularly receptive to the thing you want to throw out on the table. Yeah. Uh, how do you draw those lines? Mm -hmm. How do you figure that out or am I just being a little bit too sensitive and I should just go for it? Uh, I, I know what you would say. But. No, I think both <laughs> things are the answer, right? Like find, find a way to go for it. That way can be very, very tiny. Um, there's no reason to say I'm going to definitely do the thing that frightens me most. Like that's, that's an approach to take to spiritual life. Though like being a hermit, it's one you should probably do with the assistance of like a spiritual advisor who you know and love and who loves you. Um, because like navigating by what's the most badass thing is not necessarily navigating by what's the most Christian thing. I think, I think the thing that I find most helpful is like sharing things I actually like and using that as the invitation um, whenever I can, which means like my most often public witness is just going like, oh boy, it is the saint, the feast of, I believe it's Albertus Magnus today, right? Like, and like just like casually like mentioning that, especially if I happen to like the saint or if I happen to think the saint is like nuts. Um, <laughs> Because it means I'm happy to field the question that comes next, and it's a narrow enough topic that I feel like it's something that it's possible for me to have a conversation with, even with a friend who like is not into religion, that isn't like, man, would you like to know all my opinions on SCOTUS nominations? Like, It vaguely pertains to my faith. Let's use that as the lens by which I talk about my faith, right? Like, But that's often the lens through which people ask me about it. Um, so I guess the reassuring thing is like, you don't have to do well. You just have to do less badly than the questions that come to you by default. Um, and it's a little bit reassuring, uh, but really just not to not to feel pressure to respond to whatever the world is most interested in about our faith, because like the world is picking weird avenues of exploring it. Um, really talking from like the heart of what interests you, even not even just like what consoles you, but just interests you. Um, and I think it's it's like normal to be uncomfortable and to take steps back sometime, um, and to have conversations that just are unfruitful as far as you can tell and to be at peace with that. Um, because I had a lot of conversations on the process of converting that were not themselves fruitful in the moment, but kind of became part of a large pointillist project that was fruitful. Um, so I think you know it's easier to walk away from a conversation that could become unpleasant, knowing that just offering what we did offer is enough and not trying to like, well, let me really push, right? Like, or let me really stay here and be pushed at. Neither is compulsory. Uh, 
Hello, I just had a quick question about uh, reading your book. I I sensed very much a lot of these seemed like a lot of the books I've read on forming small groups in churches <laughs> and and the various ones. And your book was very well done. And and I think I had it, but I wasn't 100% sure what the difference between kind of your stereotypical small group formation is and what you're, the kind of groups you're talking about in building the Benedict option. I think one of the advantages of when lay people do this in a small way rather than through their parish is like you can just be weirder. Um, <laughs> Which is nice, right? Like, I, th I think it's reasonable that my parish does not say, let's, I mean, I think it'd be one thing to have a procession, another thing to have a casual rosary walk with placards, right? Like, um, and like, when I'm not bringing my parish's name into it, I can just do things that are wackier, um, which often are more attractive, right? Like, I feel like I often have the experience of going like, it would be nice to do a Bible study at my parish at some point, um, but it's always available and I'm pretty busy, like, I don't know when that's going to be a thing I'm drawn to. Um, so I think there's that. I think the other thing is you build on friendships you already have, but kind of deepen the way that you're, you know, Christian friends together rather than just like generally friends who happen to be Christian together. Um, so it's kind of deepens your friendship in that way. Um, and I think one of the benefits of doing this is, you know, you're not an institution and you aren't taking on a pledge to do this forever. Um, that, you know, I kind of draw from a number of sources in this book, and one of them is uh, a Jewish author who's the, you know, leader of this, like, kind of a small church group, uh, small minions, um, you know, who pray together. And one of the things he says is, you know, you just don't need to worry when you start a project, when you're doing it independently, about whether you can sustain it. Uh, it's not your job to sustain it. Like, it's a little arrogant that you're sure God called you to do this the rest of your life. Like... <laughs> But you might do something that's fruitful for a season and then genuinely isn't needed or isn't the right fit for your community. And I think lay people lack some of the institutional pressure that a parish has of everything we start must be successful. And success is defined by continues in perpetuity. Um, so I think that's a big gift we have as lay people. We can do weird things. We can stop doing them. We can do them with people we already love. I wanted to know what your thoughts are regarding community building on how to help people who are socially unpleasant to be around, because on the one hand, they're the people who need these benefits you're talking about most, but on the other hand, if you just pretend to like them, then you're living a lie. Well, I'll, I'm going to dispute that last premise a little bit, and then I'm going to like go to the heart of the question, in that like, love is something we do, it doesn't have to be something we feel. Um, and like, it's allowed for me to have people in my house, find them irritating, like not really want to have them in my house and take care of them. And I'm not lying to them insofar as I am taking care of them, right? It's just, it's also true I don't like them. Um, so, but it's okay to do both. Um, and I don't always have to resolve that tension myself. When it's happened and it's happened to me, I pray about it a bunch. Um, like, I, you know, I, yeah, I'm definitely not telling any of those stories in detail in this room. Um, <laughs> For me, the, the problem is less like, you know, is more when there are people who are kind of socially awkward to the extent that, you know, I'm worried other people don't want to come to my house because this person is there. Um, and my, my, I don't have a one-size-fits-all approach to this. You know, I think it's easiest to address without ever being easy the more you have an actual connection to this person uh, rather than I invited a bunch of people and one of them's really hard, but I, my whole relationship with them is being frustrated when they're in my house uh, because you're not kind of getting to that fraternal part of fraternal correction. Um, I think there's like a subset of people who are difficult to have as guests who want to be good guests and kind of struggle with how to do it. And like when that's what I feel like is going on when I can talk to them more openly, 
that's where like my approach may be to go, well, you know, like I know you kind of keep interrupting people, but you want to have like conversations that work for you and the other people. Like, can I help? Like, do you want me to just like give you like a tiny cue so that it's easier if, if it's a hard thing for you to pick up on, like that you're getting a signal from someone else who's trying to take care of you in the conversation, which is, you know, I think everyone needs help with some parts of socializing. I, in college, had a boyfriend who would spell people's names to me in ASL from behind their heads, which was great. Um, I'm very bad at them. And it's not the level of awkwardness where people found it unpleasant to be around me, I hope. But like sometimes their feelings were hurt because I appeared to have forgotten their name or not care about them. So there's people who just like need a little boost but are trying to make it work. And then there's folks where you know, you're having trouble believing that they really want to have the conversation that other people feel comfortable in, with. Um, and for me, this has come up most often um, when there are men who make women feel uncomfortable at parties. Um, and it was even something that came up like in that first discussion where you know, one of the things people wanted was like a way to handle this problem or like for the men in our group to do something more active about it so it didn't have to be a woman intervening. Um, and I don't have any perfect solutions to this. Um, you know, there have been times when like I did leave someone off an invite list like persistently because people had spoken to me about things he'd done. Um, but one of the other things I've just tried to do is, for me, the worry is even less with people who like are active irritants, but for people who are bothering someone in a way I may not be noticing at my events. And one thing I changed because of a specific incident is I used to always like make everyone leave my house in one fell swoop once the evening was done, uh, because I want them to leave. <laughs> And some people are like, oh, well, we're wrapping up, but I'll just stay and talk to Leah because I'm sure she wants to hang out with me for another hour. Um, sometimes I want to do the dishes by myself. Um, so I kind of sweep everyone out together. And it wasn't until one woman said she was specifically avoiding leaving at the same time as another guest that I thought there might be reasons people were not leaving all at the same time. And I kind of gave a grace period of lingering and then kicked people out. Um, so I think, I think the, that's kind of my range of solutions. Like, if someone wants to work on this, like, really talk to them about what they need to interact successfully and see if someone can offer it to them. And that might just be more explicit prompting than you think someone needs. Um, if no one really knows them that well and they're hard to be around, like, it may not be that you're enough of a brother or sister to do fraternal correction well. Um, and you may give up for the now and pray for them and go like, Lord, like if you want me to do something for this person, I am missing it, right? Like that's why I pray sometimes. Like I'm doing what seems like the most prudent thing, and if there's something else you want me to do, you need to be louder because I'm not getting it. Um, and the last thing is kind of have safeguards in place so that for the people you're missing who are causing problems, other people are safer or have more of a way of talking to you. <laughs> Thank you, Leah, so much. That was uh, very inspiring, um, informative, and very practical um, discussion that you just led, so thank you. I think you finally gave me the final push to start um, not just celebrating my birthday, but my, my baptism and my son's baptism as a way to, to bring people into the, the conversation around that. Um, thank you guys again so much for coming out and for those listening um, at home or listening at work and listening to this through the podcast. Um, it's really wonderful to have you guys come out, especially when we're having such weather, and to engage in your faith and your intellect, and especially with tonight's event, trying to figure out ways in which we can be effective and go out and evangelize, you know, whether that be in our immediate circle or um, through extended friends. 
And then for all of our other upcoming events, which are many, uh, you can check on our website at cacdc.org. You can follow us on Facebook or, or any other of our social media accounts. Um, thank you again so much for coming. The, the wine reception <laughs> will go until uh, 8 p.m. sharp tonight. Um, and uh, we'll also have a book signing. I'm sure Leah will be more than welcome to sign her book. Um, and encourage your friends to buy the book here. Have them pick it up here. You don't need to go to Amazon if you're local. Just come here. Um, and thank you again so much. Thank you.